0: Hey everyone, I'm Brendan with CrazedPilot.com, and I wanted to let you know about our latest cockpit audio recording cable we've just released for the brand new GoPro Hero 3 and Hero 3 Plus video cameras. In fact, I'm using one of these cables right now to record this in our airplane. You can see our camera and iPhone cockpit audio recording cables by visiting CrazedPilot.com forward slash S-M-A-C. By visiting that link... A portion of any purchase you make goes to help keep your crew with the Stuck Mike Avcast on the air, recording podcasts for us to enjoy every single month. So thanks again, and enjoy the rest of your flight with the Stuck Mike Avcast.
1: The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode
2: number 63, welcoming in the new year with our best of show, featuring some of our favorite aviation topics from the haunted airports to launch air flying and more on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast.
1: Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Neuville, Sean Moody, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa.
2: Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Len Costa. And on behalf of all of the Stuck My Gavcast hosts, we wish you a very happy 2014. We've got a great year ahead of us this year. And then episode 63, today, we're going to be sharing with you our best of show, featuring highlights from some of our favorite past segments in the last two and a half years. We'll have a brand new show for you in our next episode, episode number 64. But today, like I said, I thought it would be fun to put together some highlights to begin the new year. Let's do the pre-flight. And before we do get into those segments, a quick shout out to our sponsor, Aviation Universe, the wonderful folks at Chicago's Aviation Emporium here locally in Bensonville, Illinois. You know them well. You've listened to their uh, recording that I did with them, an interview in person there at their shop. Uh, You know we've worked well together with them, or actually say that they've helped us. Put together a very lovely 50th show, uh, 50th show party. And they've also been really great in helping Victoria with uh, Women of Aviation Week worldwide. So you can visit them at stuckmygavcast.com forward slash aviation Universe.
1: Now, entering cruise flight.
2: Now, up first in this uh, segment that we're going to be listening to right now is a discussion we had that was uh, pretty popular, in fact about the time Victoria managed to get an instructor on a day rate. We actually join this particular segment as I reference a note from a listener asking for more information about how she made this happen. We had a submission from Walter who wanted to ask Victoria how she was able to get an instructor at a day rate. So, Victoria, tell us a little bit about uh, going through that process.
3: it was pretty much a unique situation, but I wanted to get the most bang for the specific amount of money I had. And um, I basically wanted a very specific instructor, too, and this instructor didn't work regularly at that flight school. So, first of all, we had to negotiate to actually get that instructor at the flight school and then work out a number where it was cheap for me, but the flight school and the instructor still made money and it was worth their time. So I wasn't involved in the negotiation as much. I kind of let the instructor and the school handle that because I trusted them. But um, I just did some quick math here. And the instructor was usually $55 an hour. And we were together at least 8 to 12 hours a day when I did this. And that would have been $440 mm-hmm. a day just for instruction. And um, I think my daily rate turned out to be like 300 or something like that. So it was just kind of communicating between the instructor and the school, and I think you find, especially in this economy, if someone's going for a rating and shows that you know they're really willing to do the work and will get this finished, that they'll find a way to work it out with you. So you know, don't be afraid to ask. You mm-hmm. know,
4: the worst they could say is no. And
2: that's right. a pretty and, significant savings over a seven-day period, like you were doing.
5: Oh
4: yeah. Yes. And, and, yes. And definitely. I guess what, what they get out of it, right, is they can calculate a guaranteed return, uh, versus, you know, uh, 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 uh sporadic bookings or, or mm-hmm. bookings that aren't as consistent. Right. Very mm-hmm. true.
3: And that didn't even include the airplane. So, you know, the, wow. the flight school made money off of that too. I had that plane booked all day for seven days. I didn't let anyone else have it. So mm-hmm. right. I took the daily rate on that too.
2: Now, was there, uh, you know, like a negotiated rate for the daily aircraft rate as well?
3: Um, they have that preset at the flight school okay, so I didn't have to uh, use my skills for that.
2: <laughs> Did you find it was any cheaper though significantly over the hourly that you would have used it for otherwise?
3: <gasps> yeah, definitely because you know if the plane's a hundred dollars an hour and you flew it for six that's six hundred dollars and I think their daily rate was only like 400 oh, that's so if pretty you were to take it over the weekend it would be 400 a day versus right so it worked out pretty well.
2: That's very neat because I've never – we were talking offline, and I've never uh, dealt with anything based on a daily rate, and Rick hasn't either. But Carl had mentioned that he's done some daily rates as an instructor with some companies. Um, Carl, what what have you – how have you negotiated that, or what,
5: you know? Uh, you know what I, what I've done in the it, it all it's all different. You know, in other words, I have a an hourly rate that I charge, and then what I'll do is say, hey, if you want me for a day, the hourly rate goes down to X, and then I calculate what it'll be for that day. In other words, I'd give them a number, and I'd say, this is the number for the day, and you have me from this time to this time, and any other incident, they'll say if there's lunch involved, they'll buy me lunch, et cetera. Uh, sometimes what I'll do is some uh, flight instructing for insurance purposes, where they need, say, 50 hours in the aircraft and uh, of course my rate will will be quite a bit lower than if we did at the straight hourly rate but it's mm-hmm. also a guarantee for me because i know i'm going to be with that person for x number of hours um and it's always it's it's different everywhere that's and and that's the beauty is people can negotiate uh, with their instructor say hey listen i need you for this whole day can we do it at this daily rate or at a much reduced rate and if you get that up front it really it works really well mm-hmm. i do have of course you know a minimum rate that I charge for me to come out to the airport um, and I think most instructors do that work independently mm-hmm. uh, but I've never seen it advertised at a flight school and Victoria you said that they actually advertised a daily rate or no? Uh,
6: they did
3: for the airplane not for the instructor not for the
5: instructor right oh okay All right. He was yeah, a, that, that's definitely that's cool though that you did that because I think more people should do that and say hey you got me for the day and this is how much it is and, uh, and you have to maybe buy me lunch or something like that that's usually what I'll work out
3: Yeah, exactly, too. For my situation, since it had to be done within a week, I wanted an instructor who I knew I wouldn't have to fight with other students. That's a good
5: point. So this was
3: a guy I knew personally who could stay with me the whole entire week and get me through this and didn't have to worry about trying to get on the schedule in between all his other students. So that kind of helped the situation. If it was a regularly scheduled instructor, I don't know how willing they would have been to work with it. Because you know the instructors would be busy with other students anyway, so
5: mm-hmm. that's cool. Um, yeah. You, yeah, you know what's interesting, Victoria, is that there's this correlation between that and then the daily rates for folks that fly corporate. I don't know if you folks have heard this, but where it, say you're a freelance corporate pilot, what they'll do is say, okay, if you want to fly the Hawker, you're going to get X number of hours per day. And uh, that it correlates to, and, and that's how I'm able to sell this easier to people that own corporations, et cetera. So, well, your pilot charges X per day. I'm going to charge you X per day to fly your personal Mooney or 182 just so that you can actually get up to speed in that aircraft. And uh, that's actually how most of that works. I mean, a lot of folks do that right now where they, they're like number – they're the third pilot. I, I've done that where I'm third pilot on a two-pilot crew for, say, uh, uh, King Air. And they'll call me up whenever they need me, and this is at your daily rate. This is the daily rate we've negotiated in, in advance. And you don't see that too much, though, with flight instructors, I don't think. You know, other than what you've mentioned and the stuff that I've done in the past, uh, have you heard of it, uh, Len or Rick? Or, I mean, I, that's, I don't see it happening that often, but I think it's a good idea.
2: No, I actually –
5: I hadn't even heard of it
2: until – Victoria had mentioned it and I, and I thought to myself, well, that's actually a pretty neat idea. Um, and I was curious, you know, obviously to find out more about it and Carl, you know, you said that you have a, a, uh, a requirement or a time requirement just to come out to the airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. how have you seen people reacting to that, that, you know, maybe it's, I don't know what your free rate is, but you know, if you tell them, Hey, it's going to be a minimum two hour, uh, fee before I come out to the airport and we work together. Is that
5: people have been receptive of that? Uh, you know, it, it, yes, actually, I haven't had too many problems. Some, some might think it's a little bit high and, uh, but see, I'm at a point right now where I'm, you know, I'm double booked when I'm, I'm at home. So I don't, I don't really need to negotiate that Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? It's like because I'm I'm so darn busy right now. Now if I wasn't as busy, then I would really I'd reduce my rate and say no. Okay, I'll I'll bring it down. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just because I have such a you know this time constraint here, and uh, and I've I've found that too when I was instructing uh, full time, is that I would you know people would want to uh, negotiate, and I was like gosh you know I have this other person on standby, and uh, but it all depends on the the person too. You know the one. <laughs> I hate to say it, but the people, the students you don't like, you're going to not negotiate too much with on that. And the people you really want <laughs> right. to see succeed, you're going to say, okay, all right, I'll do this one for free. It's like, all right, here, you know, I'll give you a, you know, and, you know, I'll Big discount like, mm-hmm. off that that day, rate there. But you know, you have to pay for your gas to get to the airport, and uh, you have to pay for that time there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and 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 I think most independents do do that. They say, okay, I, I think the the general rule I've seen at the airport, and this is just asking around, was like two hours of of instructional time uh, for an independent instructor. Mm-hmm. That that's just what I've seen at the local. Yeah, airport. my instructor
6: at a two hour minimum. So. is that
5: what? It, okay. Yeah. So all right. I like it I think it's a good idea actually because you know
2: that you know that the student that you're going to go out there to meet is determined to get you know whatever tasks are on the list for that day accomplished because they know that they've got uh, you know they're on the hook with you for a for a minimum and if they don't get what they need to get done they've essentially wasted their money um, and you know you've you've got your time compensated so it's I like it it's a good idea All right, so our next segment, and uh, this one's very close to home for me. It's from a show we recorded while I was working my way through the progress of moving into the left seat at my day job. We called this uh, segment lovingly uh, referred to it as running the captain's gauntlet. And if you've always wondered what it's like to train to be an airline captain, then this segment is for you.
5: Len, you're transitioning to a new—no, you're not. You're transitioning to a different seat in an airplane, aren't you?
2: It may as well be transitioning to a different airplane.
5: Well, what do you you got going on? I I think you said uh, you're you're moving to the left seat of the aircraft you're in?
2: The left seat, yes, that's correct. And what that means is essentially uh, job promotion, if you will. Uh, For those who don't are familiar with how the airlines necessarily work, it's a seniority-based system. I've been a first officer for the last six and a half years, flying right seat in the Embraer 145. And I'm currently in training for um, for the captain position to fly the Embraer 145 as pilot in command.
5: Oh, boy. And watch out.
2: <laughs> yeah. This is what I'm saying. It <laughs> may be the same airplane, but it is not the same airplane. And let me tell you why. It kind of actually reminds me of that story I told a few episodes back about that Bonanza flight I went on. You know, you get so used to doing something in an airplane like you fly the you fly one kind of airplane all the time from the left seat or the right seat. You know, especially in flight instructing, you fly the Cessna 172 so many hours from the right seat. One day you go out, you want to do some approaches, You just sit in the left seat and you're like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, you just kind of you got to take a minute and slow down and get reacquainted with the other side. Just like that Bonanza flight I did. You know, I was just totally disoriented by the cockpit layout. I'm experiencing some of the same things in the jet and it's hilarious because I've flown this airplane for 3,500 hours from the right seat. I move three feet over and I can't do anything right. You know, it's just like the, the my, my everything I do now is with my right hand instead of my left hand and I'm reaching to adjust my seat and the button's on the other side. I can't reach the autopilot because I'm trying to use the wrong hand. So, it's just been an interesting experience. But, yes, moving over to the left seat, same airplane, more responsibility. And you know what I realized actually just this week is at first I thought, I, you know, I might sound like a smartass for saying this, but at first I thought it was twice as much money for half as much work. But in reality, what I've realized <laughs> is it's not even the same job, okay? Nah. Flying as a first officer and flying of the, as a captain are not the same Job, And what I mean by that is, you know, my duties as a first officer were to do a pre-flight and post-flight inspection on the aircraft, make sure that the weight and balance and the performance and, and all that stuff was up to speed, um, assist the captain in decision making, uh, helping with the flight plan, flying the airplane, those kinds of things. What I've realized over the last two weeks of all this stuff we've been talking about as a captain is you know i don't even i don't have those duties anymore my my range now my field of view is pretty much gone from if you want to call it like tunnel vision to focusing on certain tasks inside the airplane has now gone to like a 180 degree panoramic view now, now i'm paying attention to what the guy outside is doing on the tug and the guy putting the bags on the airplane and the gate agent And the flight attendant and the customers and the passengers in the back who are complaining that their bags don't fit and they refuse to check them. And so now it's not just doing weight and balance and performance. It's I'm responsible for everything, you know. And and there's a lot more to being responsible for as a PIC in you know, in a transport category jet than being PIC when I was flying my friend's um, Piper 6X because, you know – there's similar responsibilities as far as safety and weather avoidance and those kinds of things, but there's a lot less going on. Like I don't have a tug, I don't have a flight attendant, I don't have baggage handlers, I don't have a gate agent. I have all kinds of other things going on that I have to deal with. So it's been a huge learning curve, and uh, today was our first time actually getting in the flight training device. And even today, uh, simmed up with my or paired up with my simulator partner. They sat left seat, and I sat right seat, and we went through the scenario. So I still yet, as of right now, two weeks into it, still haven't sat in that left seat um, to do anything. But, you know, all these things are going on in my mind about how I, I, I'm i just going to be – it's like, you know, being completely mirror opposite. So it will be an interesting transition, but so far it's been good. We've had uh, – I brought, I brought out my list here so I could sort of give you guys a – rundown carl it's been years since you went through captain training and i don't really (laughs) sure what people know um, you know non-airline people if they know much about the process but this particular process for me consists of we had um two days of basic indoctrination which is uh, it's it's a process where we go through our flight ops manual and become reacquainted because you really I mean, we all know this stuff because again, I've been doing this as a first officer for six and a half years, but now I'm looking at it from a different perspective. so you're you're not just reminding yourself of you know refreshing your memory on information you are once familiar with, but you're learning it in a new way. You're learning a new way to apply it. And uh, you know new some things have even new meanings that you didn't realize before. So this basic indoctrination class is two days. Um, of learning our flight operations manual, which is, you know, soup to nuts, everything operationally. How do I get, you know, from point A to point B safely under the guidance of the company? The next we had, um, let's see, we had two days of cockpit (laughs) resource management. And that's just a reminder of how to, you know, how to work together as a two-crew environment there's a lot of interesting things that come into play with the two crew environment you know there's more dynamics it's interesting to to see the changes over the last six and a half years when I first started here that you know not to say that I was timid but you as when when you're new to a two crew environment sometimes you're not sure when to be assertive and raise your concern or make a comment or you know say to the captain hey i disagree with that because you don't want you know you, you're just not sure the boundaries yet and so um you know cockpit resource and cr- crew resource management there's a lot that goes into reminding us how to work together and essentially reminding us to you know as a first officer don't be bashful as a captain be accepting of what the other person has to say so that you can find that medium ground to make sure that you do get the aircraft safely from point A to point B and that everybody is on the same page. And some things as simple as, you know, communicating clearly in the fact that, you know, you've got a uh, – there was one story in class who kind of laughed at this. The gentleman was saying he was flying with a brand-new first officer – he says to so the first officer, you know, they, they were on the, uh, they were coming down on the, on the, um, the arrival into one of the airports, and he says to him, "How do I look?" And the first officer says to him, "Well, um, you know, your your necktie is kind of crooked, and uh, you, yeah." Uh, <laughs> so you know, it's just you gotta, you gotta. You have to be specific, so it's kind of it's fun to go through those classes. It's fun to get a reminder of you know how to com- like it's how to communicate once again. So we had two days of that. Then I had four days of aircraft systems, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when I put this in perspective for you, the first opportunity when I first came through tra- airline training, we had ten days of airline systems. They have crunched all that ten days down into basically three and a half because we had three days. Well, then we went in on the fourth day and had a half. We had like two hours of, of, uh, of um, you know, learning the systems, and then we took the exam. So again, you know, we we are. If this is not information that's new to us. Uh, you know, as an aircraft operator, you you know what's you know the systems of your airplane. But to take ten days and condense it down into four was definitely like you know putting your definitely that that analogy of putting your mouth around the mouth around the fire hose there so uh that was great you know so far so good and today i had my first actually yesterday we had what else do we have something um oh we we talked about human centered automation training how to basically not let a perfectly good airplane fly into uh the ground there's some cool stuff in there uh, I won't talk too much about that because I could go on about different stories. And then we had uh, Mountainous Terrain Ops, and today was – again, today was the first time I did the uh, the flight training device. So I've got – where's my other schedule? Oh, it's over here. It's on my other side. We've got three three flights in the flight training device, which is basically getting acquainted to sitting in the left seat, doing your cockpit flows, which are all brand new because they're completely different. I'm I'm learning – the other side of the airplane, you know, the buttons that are on your side, Carl, are not the buttons that are on my side on the overhead panel. So now I've don't switch them out. in
5: the wrong direction.
2: <laughs> exactly, right? Don't, yeah. <laughs>
5: don't turn the fuel pump off. Put it on.
2: <laughs> so I'm learning all of that, and then we have uh, it's like five simulator flights, and then a um a check ride in the simulator, which is my type rating check ride. And before that, actually before all that we have an oral exam. Just like it's it's the same as when you go and get your private, your instrument, your commercial, you get an oral exam, you got a practical flight, a practical exam in the airplane. Same thing. You know, but our flight lessons are three in the flight training device, which is uh, the flight training device is a full cockpit mock-up. It just has uh, has no motion, so it's just stationary. And then we have the, uh, like I said, the where did it go? Five, one, two, three, four, five flights in the full the full motion simulator. A check ride is the sixth flight, and then the seventh flight in the simulator is a line orient, uh, line oriented flight training, and that's essentially in the simulator a captain and a first officer. Paired together, and they put you in the simulator, and you're gonna operate a revenue flight from point A to point B in real time. And they wanna observe how you're interacting, how you handle the aircraft. Sometimes they throw emergencies and abnormal situations at you, and so that you know you're in the safety of the simulator. How are you gonna handle this? How are you gonna handle that? after that tell me about like as if as if there wasn't there there wasn't enough things going on here (laughs) after all of that i'm tired just thinking about what i have left here carl after that i have uh there's there's a process called operating experience where you fly with a training captain in the aircraft now with passengers and they observe you for i mean you've you've got the type rating you're um you know, you've been certified by the FAA for operating this aircraft as pilot-in-command. Now they just want to make sure that you can still do it safely in an actual airplane. So this training captain will go with you for about 10 or 15 hours and then sign you off. And then one more um, one more flight with an FAA observer to give you the final blessing. So I don't know if anybody's counting, but I had um, the ATP written exam. That I had to pass. We had two written exams, one last week, one this week in ground school. I've got a check ride in the flight training device, an oral exam, a check ride in the full flight simulator, a this uh, check ride which is you know the loft, the training captain flights, and the FAA observation. I already lost count, but I think it's like seven or eight different. Check rides or testing things that are going on through this whole process. So uh, this is a nice break to be talking to you guys tonight. I'll tell you what,
6: <laughs> you know, you're getting I had, me. Tired I, just I almost listening. laughed when you said final blessing. I imagined a priest like giving you a sign of the cross, <laughs> and sprinkling holy water on you. I don't know why that's just what came to my head.
2: <laughs> omni omni v o r.
5: It's funny. Some people do kiss the ground afterwards. <laughs>
2: Wow. So yeah, I've Dude, been that's... I've been buried under notebooks and just I've, yeah, it's been a fun experience. I'm definitely looking forward to it, but it's going to be a it's going to be a change, a huge cultural shock. Oh, sure. You know, like I said, in in operating differently because I'm not you know I'm not here to do task A, B, and C. I am now have to expand my horizon and take in the big picture. And while that might seem you know kind of silly to the to you listeners out there, you know from folks who operated general aviation aircraft. when you put in perspective what I've been doing for six and a half years for nearly thirty five hundred hours of muscle memory from one side of the airplane, that's when it makes a little more sense that you know it's going to be awkward for for a little you know for a time frame, getting used to moving over three feet to a new seat, a new perspective new buttons using my my left hand on the yoke and my right hand on the thrust levers instead of vice versa so i'm yeah i'm having a good time i tell you that much it's definitely it's definitely been a fun process so far so at this point i've got i think i've still got a couple more weeks left it's not quite over yet i'm not quite at the halfway point when we hit that oral exam i think everything from there is downhill Len here again. Now, uh, our, our next item that we're going to be enjoying is uh, from one, one, actually, one year for Halloween, Victoria had this idea based on one of her blog posts, as a matter of fact, to discuss haunted airports. Now, we had no idea there were actually so many, but uh, as you will hear, this started, started quite a spirited conversation. So here we go. Victoria has a topic she wanted to share with us. It's kind of relevant to the season, so I'll go ahead and let her lead off today.
3: All right. Well, my topic for today was um, haunted airports. And I gathered a list um, a couple of Halloweens ago for my blog, and I thought I'd just share it with you. What do you guys want to hear first, the ones in the United States or out of the United States?
5: Hmm. Well, let's go I out think... of the U.S. first. How's that sound? Okay, there you
3: go. U.S. first?
5: <laughs> um, how about overseas or out of the U.S.? Oh. Let's go there first. Oh,
3: out of U.S. Sorry, I misheard yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, this isn't going to be too one. scary, is it? Um, You may have nightmares. Oh, boy. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) Not too bad. Um, First one on the list is London Heathrow International Airport, and that's uh, Echo Golf Lima Lima. Um, Hung for thievery, rape, torture, and setting his victims ablaze. Dick Turpin is only one of the haunts near the gates of London's busiest airport. He's been spotted riding a black horse, or his breath has been felt on the necks of airport employees. Um, wow. in addition to him, the spirit of a businessman frequents the VIP lounge. Uh, apparently he's searching for his briefcase lost over 60 <laughs> years ago. Uh, like- and this is when he perished in a DC three crash. And did I just get disconnected?
4: No, no, you're good.
3: Oh, okay. It it flashed at me. (laughs) Okay.
5: It's the ghosts.
3: (laughs) It's the ghosts. They know we're talking about them. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, this airport is not the only one that's pretty popular um, for haunts in England. Uh, The county of Lincolnshire is apparently said to be spotted with vintage airfields. And uh, when you go there, you can hear the sounds of Merlin engines and the ghosts of Royal Air Force pilots. Ooh,
2: that's creepy.
3: Yeah, I like that one. Going on to Queensland, Australia, and this is a Y, Yankee Bravo Alpha Foxtrot, Archerfield Airport. Still wearing his flight goggles and cap, a Royal Australian Air Force pilot strolls the swamplands behind the airport. Um, he met his end when the Douglas C 47 sky trained, crashed there in March of 1947. It killed him and 22 of his listed, uh, comrades. Um, but apparently he's Queen, Queen uh, friendliest ghost. He's known to smile and wave at people who see him.
4: Wow, so, so so people, some people see these ghosts. They're not just yeah, like, people feeling, have seen them. wow.
3: Yeah. So they see him and apparently he waves back at you. So <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Um nice. This next one, forgive me cuz I'm going to mess up how you pronounce this. Suvarnabhumi
6: Airport, I'm guessing, in Bangkok, Thailand. <laughs> that's, uh,
1: wow.
6: I know I butchered it, didn't I? <laughs> I, uh, I, would,
2: I would don't worry. I can't I can't
4: go, even pronounce it. I would I practice that one before I go into that airport. I would rehearse <laughs> that one.
3: Suvarnabhumi. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not Thai, so it's okay. Um that's Victor Tango Bravo Sierra. Um, And there was a good reason for construction workers to be delaying the build of this new airport. Apparently spirits, um, the fears of the workers became such a dilemma that they had to have 99 Buddhist monks out there to uh, chant and uh, get the spirits to go away. Um, Although the monks' efforts did not scare all the apparitions away, apparently there's one called Pu Ming. He's an old man with a blue face and he roams the halls and you can hear his footsteps at night. Uh, the head security officer has witnessed Ho-Ming, uh wandering well, uh, all around, as well as a lady holding a baby. Um, when she crossed the street in front of him, he slammed on the brakes and she disappeared. Wow. Yeah. Ooh.
4: So
6: those are dun, our dun,
3: dun. oversee ones.
4: Wait, before we do domestic, since yes. we have two, two uh, sort of professional guys who fly in and out of major airports... Based on the flying, I wanted to ask uh, Len and Carl, which airports would you guess are haunted just based on the flying?
2: Ooh, well, I don't know about haunted, but uh, I have um, down in Savannah. Savannah is an interesting airport. On um, runway 10 on in Savannah, there are two tombstones in the runway surface. I think it was just, we just there last week. I want to say at the top of my mind it's about uh, – on runway 10 at intersection Foxtrot, on Google Maps, you can zoom in. It's kind of difficult to make out, but you can see two old headstones um, in the pavement, and there's uh, said to be two more somewhere out in the grass. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the story, but I think something about the airport used to be a burial ground, and the reason those tombstones are still there is because the um, the airport Uh, property couldn't reach the owners or the family members to ask them permission to move them. So they are, I mean, you can see Carl's probably seen them, but in, uh, you know, I know in Savannah on that one particular runway, if you'll see them just off the left of the center line. So I I don't know if it's haunted, but there's definitely some people buried under the
4: runway. any airport should be haunted, it should be, it would be that one.
5: (laughs) And by the way, Len, (laughs) don't land on them because, you know, I've heard that if you touch down right on them, that they'll come visit you at night.
3: You'll be cursed forever.
5: Be
2: cursed. Well, I'm already worried that that hotel is haunted anyway. Oh, there, oh, that's a whole different story. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
3: Glenn's got some stories, huh?
2: Oh, how about Wichita? Uh, I've, ha- like, I've uh, had a visitor. I can't remember where it was. It was in uh, Louisiana. Somebody, uh, Somebody was rustling through my closet, and the captain that I was flying with Made a comment later that day that he woke up to somebody pushing on his mattress, and I said, "What time was that?" And he gave me the time, and I said, "That's around the time I heard somebody rustling through my closet and and messing with the hangers." He's like, "Dude, that's freaky." Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was Baton Rouge or one of the uh, one of the Louisiana airports that we go to. Hey,
1: Interesting. Wow.
2: Yeah. There's a few of them out there. There's a few haunted hotels we stay at, Pro- oh gosh, suppose, alleged haunted hotels. I mean, I don't, I don't know either way. I haven't experienced much other than, than that, uh, that one incident. But uh, what about you, Carl?
5: Oh, gosh. I so can't sleep at night sometimes when I go to <laughs> hotels. I, I, I almost have to call in fatigue. I really I can't do the scary stuff. I, I'll admit I'm a big baby when it comes to that. And someone tells me a haunted. there's a hotel that's haunted. I leave the light on all night forget it i just can't i cannot go to sleep without it (laughs) on so Uh you know you were talking we're talking about wichita wichita is one where you know the the airport itself supposedly might be haunted but but the hotel also is definitely on everybody's list as being haunted i think we switched hotels because of it but i in the middle of the night i will say i've i've I don't believe that it was a ghost or anything, but the light actually came on by itself. And I actually looked at the switch, and it was a little bit loose. So I was assuming that's what happened. Excuses, uh, (laughs)
2: excuses.
5: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But there is an old 1930s terminal that's actually in Wichita, which isn't at the the main airport. It's at the other Wichita airport, which is where they uh, maintain the the 757 and the Boeings and all those. And there's the the museum out there, and it's uh, the—
3: Hey, that's on my list.
5: Yeah. Oh, is it really?
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll so tell maybe you more this about
5: haunted. it. Yeah, I went for a tour through there, and it was it was kind of eerie. I've I've been there a bunch of times, but but as this person is telling me this, it started getting darker, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And what had happened is at the same time, this guy's telling me that supposedly it's haunted, and there's well, you can tell the story about it. It starts getting darker and darker and darker, and I was like. This is so creepy and and I actually did leave the room and walked outside I looked outside it was a, it was rain clouds that were coming up uh, from uh, the south. I was like, oh ho ho so i I stayed there, but I made sure that i uh, I saw other people around the the uh, museum while I was walking around i didn't stay by myself. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I I want to hear about this one, about the museum out there. It's a wonderful museum, but again, it's haunted. Just like the one in in, uh, Houston Hobby, I've heard stories of people uh, actually seeing airline pilots and passengers walking through that old terminal building, which was built at a similar time. I don't know if that's on your list also, the old air terminal building. Yeah, that was, uh, what's his name? Um, The Spruce Goose.
6: Uh, Oh, the Spruce Goose, Howard Hughes.
5: Howard Hughes. He actually had a hangar there. And there's this one hangar with a runway that's that goes straight out from the hangar, and he had them make sure they built one there so he could actually take off right out of his hangar and take off. But that terminal, there, is supposedly also haunted. Very but, cool. Yeah, but I'm, I want to hear about this Wichita one now.
3: Well, <laughs> apparently you can probably tell me more since you've been there, and I've been wanting to make a trip out to Kansas because there's a lot of great uh, aviation things to see out there. Hmm. Um, I don't know the exact stories about. Um what is actually haunted there. Um, but I know it used to be called the country club without the dues. Um, uh, legends such as Howard Hughes, who we just spoke about and Fred Astaire like frequented it. Um, there's always chilling shadows. Um, they've actually had ghost hunters there and the needles will jump when you asked, um, like they went next to a crop duster and said, uh, did you crash in this aircraft and the needles would go all crazy. Um, strange noises, weird movements of doors and all that type of stuff has been, uh, happening for years, but I'm not sure, you know, who the ghosts actually are in this. So I don't know if that's something they told you on your tour.
5: Yeah. Is it the steerman? I mean, that's what one guy was telling me is that sometimes people see I I think that was used crop dusting and it was used in a lot of different air shows, et cetera. But they were saying that every so often people will go near there and they'll, They'll hear something, or some something will. They'll feel wind, and there's no wind in the building. Obviously, they'll and and uh, maybe hear voices, etc. So I am definitely not going to sleep tonight. Now, gosh, really. <laughs> Sorry, I'm calling it fatigue tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Happy thoughts.
3: All right. Well, we only got two more. So, so. this is cool. Oh, hopefully though. they're this not too scary.
1: <laughs> I'll be okay.
3: Um. This one's actually a newer airport. Um, K. Romeo Sierra Whiskey. It's Southwest Florida International in Fort Myers, Florida. Um, they don't know why they have all these unusual incidents since it's, you know, not built on an Indian graveyard or anything like that. Um, but you can hear toilets flush and sinks turn on while no one's nearby. Payphones ring as you pass them. And sometimes they see an aging man, uh, clothed in a trench coat, vanishing behind the ticket counter. Where is this? Uh, Southwest Florida International in Fort Myers. Oh, my God.
2: I'd be creeped out if, like, that's like something you see in the movies, walking by and the phones start ringing. That's creepy.
3: They're after you. Oh, I lied. I have have three more, not two more. Um, Mojave Airport in California. MHV. It's actually an airplane graveyard. Um, (laughs) Outfitting. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you ever heard of The Outsiders. It's like a paranormal investigation TV show. I'm not sure if it's still on, Um, but I actually saw this on TV. They were performing some research at this very place and a loud bang came from within a DC-9. Uh, They captured glowing lights on film and uh, cameras fell over by a 747. Let's see what else. The, the door of a Vietnam plane flew open and then slammed shut. And so it gets you thinking, you know, how many people have passed through the doors of those planes and, you know, how many people possibly died on them that are haunting them today. So, um, last but not least, this is probably one of the more popular ones, Denver International.
4: Really? Wait, the yeah. new, the new, the current Denver yep. airport?
3: K-D-E-N. Wow. It's a, oh, well, maybe it's not (laughs) well-known. No. Um, It's rumored to be built upon a Native American burial ground. Um, Many employees and passengers uh, claim to hear strange sounds and people whispering in their ears. Um, They have some very unique and creepy murals and artwork throughout the airport, um, so that probably encourages the spooky atmosphere. But supposedly pictures taken within the airport have developed with unexplained misty figures nearby. And then also there's a lot of conspiracy around uh, Denver because it is apparently was built as the headquarters for the global genocide that will trigger trigger the new world order. Wow. There you go. (laughs) History in Denver International.
4: That's quite a plan. Wow. They they got a lot going on there.
3: They do. They're very busy.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> Whoa. Now where Whoa. did you hear about all these airports? How did you find
5: that out? All I this, do uh... my
3: research, buddy.
5: Wow. Nice. Yeah, I'm I just
3: I blogged about it like I think sometime last year. And so I just did all the searches that I could and delved into the most interesting ones. And there you go.
5: That's really cool.
4: I'm sure
6: there's more. So if any readers or listeners would yeah. send some in, it would be really neat to hear.
4: Exactly. Tell us, tell us your haunted Airport story. Now
2: up next is a discussion of one of my favorite $100 hamburger stories, my flight in an sr 22 G3 around Hawaii. Yeah, I know. Life is rough, but uh, let's tune in and check this one out. I'll tell a little bit of story. Anybody want to hear about a hundred ham, $100 hamburger flight in Hawaii?
5: Oh, my gosh. No. <laughs>
2: I didn't fly the airplane down to Hawaii. I just picked one up in Hawaii and flew it around the islands. But um, I actually had an opportunity to fly a Cirrus SR22 G3, um, in when I was on vacation last month in Maui, and it was kind of it was it was actually pretty cool because it sort of turned into a flight lesson, which turned into a hundred dollar hamburger, which turned into an interview that's going to be coming out. Um, on the, uh, as a, a episode here in probably the next, actually this is 36. It's probably going to come out as 36A and it turned into what looks like is going to be two flying videos as well. So, uh, this, uh, it was a, like I said, a dep- we departed from Maui, um, Maui airport, uh, Kahalui, that's it. That's how you say it, Kahalui airport on the Island of Maui. And we headed over to the island of Lanai, which is one of the neighboring islands in Hawaii. And we did a landing there. And we, what we did was we took the shuttle uh, bus from the Lanai airport up to the Four Seasons Hotel at the top of the at the top of the mountain for uh, for lunch. And this airport, excuse me, actually this um, this hotel, this Four Seasons Lanai at the top of the mountain, is actually where Bill Gates got married. And she's uh, absolutely gorgeous. So you got to. You got to take into account a few things here. I mean, you're not only flying in Hawaii and you're going for a hundred dollar hamburger flight, but it's just the scenery is absolutely amazing. You've got mountains, you've got ocean, you've got cliffs, you've got all kinds of really cool stuff. Now, one of the first things that I, you know, you, I, I fly general aviation aircraft up here in the upper forty eight, so you know, flight over long, long distance flights over water aren't, um, aren't something that I normally deal with. So we get to the airport and we meet Lawrence, who um, who is the chief uh, the chief instructor at uh, Maui Flight Academy. And he's talking to us, uh, talking through us uh, how to use the safety equipment. And that safety equipment that we had on uh, for myself and uh, my friend Melissa, who is with me, we had the airline-style the airline-style flotation devices that you actually buckle around your waist. So he briefed us on how to use those. And we had a life raft in the aircraft, a four-person life raft, and we also had a a canister of... um, it's like a, a a portable scuba canister that was going to give us about five uh, five minutes of air if we were flipped over or underwater. Um, we also had a tool in there, a hammer tool, to break the break the window and get out of the aircraft to cut away the seatbelts and all that kind of stuff too. So it was very interesting because I mean we we've all we got you know we're all kind of aware of this different types of safety equipment, but I've not actually you know put on a life jacket or a flotation device before actually boarding an aircraft and going for a flight. So it was, I I don't necessarily know. I want to say it was probably about only 30, 40 miles across across the water to the island of Lanai. Um and we did brief, you know, we did talk about if we were gonna if there was any sort of emergency. Uh you actually hear a little bit about this during the interview process, but you know, in the series we would just pull the parachute and um that's what we were gonna do. So we went over to Lanai, we took the took the um, took the shuttle bus up to the four seasons, had lunch, and uh spent about two hours there just talking. Uh actually it turns out he was a, he was a podcast listener um, uh, one of our listeners at the podcast. Well, that was pretty cool. So we talked about a lot of stuff there. And then what we did next is we went from Lanai over to another adjacent island called Molokai. And this I think is probably going to be one of the favorite videos that I share with you guys here, uh, in the coming weeks. But you fly over the island of Molokai, uh, you're at about 2,500 feet. And when you reach the end of the island, um, being at 2,500 feet age or 2,500 feet MSL, you're roughly about 500 feet above the ground. And when you reach the, the edge of the island, it just drops sheer drop straight down to the straight down to sea level. And there's a piece of land, a plot of land out there with the, uh, with the airport for Molokai. So, um, as, as soon as you cross the, uh, the sea cliffs, you have to make a you know, not a not a real spiraling descent, but you you come and do like a, a 270, and you come descending around and you line up for the runway. And depending on depending on how choppy the sea is, it's not uncommon for waves to be splashing over the runway when you're coming down on the approach. Um, and it was just one of the coolest experiences that I've ever had. And I wanted to share. Uh, you know, I'm going to share the interview and the videos coming up here pretty shortly. Like I said. Um, but it's it's one of those, one of those like I, th- I guess I would call it the extreme hundred dollar hamburger flight because that's probably pro- one of the coolest. Not just because of where we were, but uh, you know we got to do some overwater flying, we got to do some mountain flying, we got to do um, all kinds of different stuff, and so it was, it was one of the coolest things that I've done. And we came back to Maui and called it quits. Uh, and went on our our separate way, but uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about Maui Flight Academy later on in the show. It's uh, it's my pick of the week, so um, it's just a really really cool place to fly. Has anybody had a, an opportunity to fly in Hawaii?
5: Never no. been there. You haven't. No, that's one of my that's on my bucket list: Hawaii and Alaska. And Len, you've done that in the past year. I've you, done them. You're both. hero. Yes, <laughs> living vicariously through you, Len. <laughs> Well, Hawaii was one of the last two
2: uh, U.S. states that I've not been to. I've I've been to 49 now, and the only one that I have left is Oregon. And so when I was looking at vacation, I was like, Hawaii or Oregon? Hawaii or Oregon? I was like, Hawaii. Definitely. Oregon's not, uh, not that there's anything wrong with Oregon, but when you know, when compared to Hawaii, I was definitely drawn to to an island vacation. So I only got. One state left, and in fact, uh, another friend of ours, um, Dan Pimentel of Airplanista fame, lives out in Oregon, so I think I'll go visit him sometime, and uh, maybe we'll go flying in, in his airplane, so that'd be another,
5: another fun vacation. Well, I was going to try to race you, but I think you're going to beat me. I'm, I'm, I might. I'm f- yeah, you probably are, because I still have Alaska, Hawaii, and, well, uh, oh, let's see. Which Delaware. one is it? Delaware. Delaware. Of all places. I've never been to <laughs> Delaware. I've never flown into Delaware.
6: There's a good $100 hamburger in Delaware. There's a lot there. of cool places Got a there. Old, lot of old MiGs, like, hanging out at the airport. Yeah, what's an,
5: what's that? that? I know Newcastle. I've known Georgetown. that. Oh, Georgetown. That's right. Yeah. I've, I've heard of Delaware, that. Delaware, not Washington. D, not D.C., right? Delaware. Yes. Yes. No, I won't go there. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that'd be cool. That's a, but Len, that's that's awesome, man. That's, that's but the video
2: a- is the video and the photos that I have. I can't really. I mean, you can only tell a story so much, you know, via audio. But uh, the visuals that I have to share on the website are are just going to. We actually
5: pictures are cool
2: when we cro- Well, this is the funny thing, right? When we crossed. <laughs> When we were at that 2,500 feet, and we crossed the, you know, the the sea cliff, and it dropped straight down to sea level. Melissa was in the back, and she was just like, you could hear her in the video. Actually, it's kind of funny. You can hear her just go, "Oh my god!" <laughs> She's like so <laughs> so excited. Um, the the pictures are beautiful. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> You know, in one particular show, we were very fortunate enough to get some inside stories from the Apollo space program. Our guest was someone who played an important role in getting, uh, getting man to the moon, and he happens to be someone near and dear to Victoria. Now, I'll let her do uh, do the introductions.
6: We're here today recording in my basement, as I said before, with my grandfather, Harlan Newville, who actually played a very integral role in all of the Apollo missions. Um, he's one of the reasons why I wanted to fly. So, um grandpa welcome yes thank you you guys can all call him harlan i apologize if i call him grandpa
4: throughout the recording well, that's, a, that's cool that's <laughs> cool no problem
6: um first off i'd like to start out with how um the space race came to be and how you got involved
7: uh well it, um it started out with uh the icbm kind of a standoff between us and the russians where we were both building Uh, inertial missiles, and uh, um, we were getting kind of like tied up with this thing. And somebody thought uh, the Russians started launching uh, astronauts into Earth orbit before we did. And so that got us uh, kind of interested in putting man in space. And so we started adapting our um, launch vehicles for or missiles to putting men up there, and the Russians were way ahead of us, and they demonstrated that when they launched uh, Sputnik in uh, 1957. So, so, so you you'd you'd, uh, you'd step out on your back porch in the evening hours when you can see this thing, and you'd see Sputniks uh, orbiting overhead, mm. uh, giving out little squeals, which just frightened. Uh, everybody, you could actually yeah.
6: hear it.
4: Yeah.
7: Oh. Well, well, it broadcast. It was oh, broadcast. Yeah, oh. Right. Cool. <laughs> so, so that got everybody excited.
4: Wow. I bet. Can I ask a quick question just about that little bit right there? Not yep. just Sputnik, but the that period. we 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 were focusing on, on what we were focused on. Did some of these steps by the Russians take us by surprise? Like, was that, or were, no, did we, uh, we kind of know we had we had missed a boat all of a sudden, and we're trying to.
7: Catch up. Yeah. No, we knew about, uh, after World War II, um, we took half of their scientists, including Von Brown, into mm-hmm. captivity, and they took the other half. Mm. And everybody kind of knew what everybody else was doing, but <laughs> you didn't know how far you went until you saw something overhead.
4: Right. Way less, Way less. until those satellites were up there, which they are now, way less yeah. ability to know what's going on. Right. Interesting. Okay.
7: And then the thing that frightened us was they would launch satellites that weighed a thousand pounds uh, and ours would weigh a couple of hundred. Right. And that demonstrated right away that we didn't have the boosters to do other kinds of things.
4: Got it. Okay, I'll let you go ahead. That's all fascinating. Go ahead.
7: Oh, okay. Well, then um, Kennedy knew uh, that we were kind of losing the race to Earth orbit based on the fact that they had men in space before us, and they were thousands of pounds, and we were not. And so uh, he sent Johnson off to look for something else to beat them with, and nobody had technology for getting to the moon. Right, right. So Jack says, we're going to the moon. Right, as a a way. uh, Go ahead. Not only that, we're going to return them safely to Earth. And that was a remark made on behalf of our uh, contemporaries, you know?
4: Yeah, yeah. So so that was an attempt. So by putting that flag out there of the moon, it was because there were other things we knew we were going to lose to. So, you know, Gagarin was like, somebody like Gagarin was going to get up there first to orbit, and we right. weren't going to beat him for that, but we needed a target that we, that right. we could beat him for. Wow. And that's a huge jump from yep. where we were to where we had to get.
7: And we knew... For sure, nobody had a booster that could get men to the moon. They didn't, and we did. They had bigger ones when it came to warheads and Earth satellites hmm. than us. Uh, but nobody had uh, something big enough to launch uh, a men on way to the moon. So he picked that. Right. Huge. And then it, it, he made that remark, too, that and returned him safely to Earth.
4: Right, which is adds another level to the complexity of the.
7: That's right, absolutely right.
4: Because everything you add in that you have to get up there to get you, you back, back, you have to lift at yep. the beginning. Right, right, right. Wow. Now so was there talk? You guys, so you hear that? Did you hear that speech and say we shocked, or was it like? Were, did, could you conceive that that would be possible in that timeline?
7: Um, was it, it kind little, of fit in. Uh huh. You know, they had beaten us to orbit, and they were showing off their big. Uh, manned uh, vehicles in Earth orbit, and so it it was kind of like, yeah, that's right, we should do that.
4: Cool.
2: Now, we recently celebrated our 50th episode, and uh, we came up with the fun idea that what if we all discussed our various 50s in our own logbooks, like our 50th hour, 50th landing, or our 50th flight as pilot-in-command? We soon learn that there are a lot of fifties to talk about, and as you will hear in this next segment, it was a lot of fun to walk through each of our flying past. Uh, Rick, tell us about yeah. your fiftieth logbook entry.
4: Yeah, um, I, it was fun to kind of. It's always fun to go back through, and there's, there there aren't always reasons. So when Victoria suggested this, it was a great, you know, opportunity to to look through. And there was a number of other fifties I, I looked at first, but when I came upon this one, it was it was great. <clears throat> this was my uh the way the way the school work could uh when i was training was and i don't know if this is universally true but it made sense at the time and was that we um did with a cfi we did practice the practice cross countries with them you know we would run the route and they would basically yeah he's safe to run this route by himself and we would usually do that and then the next flight would be the solo cross country so my 50th logbook entry is my practice uh cross country just before my first solo cross country um, which was from Norwood to Martha's Vineyard, so and it was just it's a great flight because it's over water. There's great there's great land, you know, sort of topography, as the ocean, you know, just the way the shape of the of of the land is in that part of the, the part of the country. And um, and uh, it was a beautiful day. and It was a great flight, and it led it led to this next amazing flight, which was which was my first uh, you know solo cross country and and uh, you know just you know all the stuff that comes with that. Um, I remember. I remember thinking after we were done that um, part of the reason I think that the school I was at from Norwood, based on where everything's situated, picks uh, the vineyard. It has to obviously be fi- more than fifty uh, mile, nautical miles, and um, and it is just barely. So that is, that gives it that place. Plus, it's really hard to get lost. Um, those of you who know the area, it, it, it's pretty clear where it is. And there aren't too many choices and, uh, uh, of, of large islands off the South coast of Massachusetts. So, uh, so in that sense, it all made sense. And, and, um, it was, um, it was fun. And, and I don't remember, you know, I don't remember much other than, uh, just being amazed that I had actually, you know, taken a plane and you know, gone to an island. Mm -hmm. And it was, so it was magical on a number of levels. And that, and it was just a, you know, it was the gateway to all the other things that happened after that. So that was my 50th entry. Um, Very neat. Wow. uh, Yeah.
2: Martha's Vineyard is a good place to go.
4: It is. It's a great, yeah, it gets, it it accomplishes a number of fun things. It does. (laughs) Plus the (laughs) views are are good. Right.
0: Uh, Sean, tell us about your 50th logbook entry. My 50th entry was, um, one of my first uh solos out to the practice area um out to one of the surrounding airports where I could do uh takeoffs and landings without a tower and um looks like I got in uh six landings uh spent about an hour and i don't know if other people were this way when i first got my solo endorsement you know i'd take off i'd leave the air and i'd get out to the practice area and i really i didn't know what to do <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just kind of out there. I was like, okay, well, I'm here now. And I didn't, you know, I felt confident enough to be safe in the airplane, but I didn't have that confidence to get out there and start doing steep turns on my own. I was I was fairly afraid of the aircraft starting out, so I'd just go out and do landings over and over again. So this looks like I just went up, did a bunch of landings at one of the other airports, and came straight back. And that, that pretty much sums up all of my early private pilot training in a <laughs> nutshell. It, uh, it really does. Uh, did, uh, did you guys ever have that experience when you were starting out? I mean, that that's pretty much all my practice area solo flights in a nutshell.
6: I always, I did the same thing. I flew like over my house, looped around a bit, but I didn't <laughs> want to do stalls or anything. I was just yeah. like, pretty. I'm going to enjoy myself. Do a selfie. Okay. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: I procrastinated a little bit. I'd go out there and kind of fly around in circles for a few minutes, like sort of really wide clearing turns. And I'd be like... All right, I'm supposed to go out here and practice these things. It was, it was almost a little weird not having the um you know, the guidance of the flight instructor walking you mm-hmm. through a setup or something and you're kind of just out there and you're like, Well, I know how to do this, but I don't really feel like doing it or or you <laughs> know, sometimes you're just kinda of like, All right, uh, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. All right, let's do this, let's do this. And uh yeah, I can remember I can remember a similar, similar feeling.
0: hmm Yeah, without without the structure of an instructor saying, Okay, now we're gonna do this. Now we're gonna do this. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> I'm trying to work? remember. You know, it's funny. I, I think I recall most, I, I hear everyone talking about heading out to the practice area. And um, for some reason, maybe just the way it all played out, most of my practicing alone was pattern or going somewhere, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. going to, a like they'd approve me to whatever the local, nearby, you know, airport would, would be to go practice, uh, you know, landings there. And uh, it's so funny. I, d- I don't recall thinking, oh, I better do some more you know turns. You know I better do some more steep turns or something by myself. Uh, I don't know why that is. Hmm.
0: The, the worst part was, you know, debriefing. Well what would you do? Uh, well, I went out uh, uh I turned. I really didn't know what to come back with, but uh but yeah, that it kind of brought back some memories. I hadn't thought about that in a while and just sort of the but it was fun. I loved doing it. You know. Yeah. But uh but yeah, that that's my 50th entry. Huh. Uh Victoria, your 50th entry.
6: My 50th entry was to, um, from Pontiac airport. This is when I was living in Michigan and I did all my training there. Um, I went from there to Lapeer airport to do some, uh, it says on my notes, practice short field landings and emergency procedures. Oh, so I was doing some training.
5: Okay.
2: I uh I went through and I found my fiftieth flight, which was back in 1997. My fiftieth logbook entry was back in 1997. It was a it was a flight simply around the local area, but it was a, it was it was new to me because it was a flight in a Mooney M20J. Um, it was for 1.5, and the the departure and destination destination airport were the same. So, if I recall correctly. Uh, my instructor had gotten the keys to the Mooney and took me out for a joyride because it was my first time in a complex aircraft. Um, he was showing me, you know, how to work the prop and the landing gear. And I remember going up to Manchester Airport and requesting a a uh, a low approach, which uh, we conveniently did at full power. And that was exciting in its own right. And, uh, you know, just had a good time showing me about how to use a complex aircraft. Um, and that was my 50th logbook entry, which kind of brings us into, you know, the next one I was thinking about, what's our 50th flight hour? And I'm going to go first because as it turns out, when I was researching my 50th logbook entry, my 50th flight hour logged was the same flight. Mm -hmm. It was the exact same flight. So I logged my 50th hour during my 50th flight, which was, uh, I didn't realize that until we started doing research for this show. Um, so, yeah, that was way back in 1997, and it was in a Mooney, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I do remember that airplane. I, so I think it's the only time I've ever, I've gone in that very same Mooney, I think like two or three times, but I've never been back in a Mooney uh, since then. I remember it was fun. It was, a, it was quite a fast, and compared to the 152 that I was learning in, um, but still is, you know, quite a uh, quite a powerful airplane, so it was a lot of fun. Now, in our final segment, which is uh, from a really fun episode we did with Joe Barbera, his claim to fame was that he piloted a lawn chair hanging under 80 balloons to more than 21,000 feet. There is a lot to this story, but where we're going to pick up right here at this portion is with a question from Sean.
0: Joe, when, when you were up there, especially when you get up in those higher altitudes, you mentioned 21,000, you saw an uh, airliner go by. What's... I mean, are you stable? Is it swinging? And, and what, and what's going through your mind? What, what kind of, you know, sensations or emotions are you feeling there?
8: Yeah. So the altitude above a couple hundred feet became a non-factor other than, Oh, I can see this lake. I know where that is, you know, because really once you're up the ground, you're up the ground. So mm-hmm. everyone's, Oh, well you're scared to be that high. And you really, no, I mean, being close to the ground is way scared. I mean, like like most people, if I climb a ladder, I'm like petrified, you know, because yeah, you can you can visualize getting hurt. If you're at if you're at 500 feet or 5,000, you know, 10,000, it makes no difference. Uh, so that wasn't worried. There was there's no relative wind unless there's some kind of wind change. So if the wind's going 100 miles an hour, you're going 100 miles an hour over the ground, but you, you're still you're 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 going with the air mass right? Every now and then the balloons would rustle above me and that would kind of make me nervous. You know, but I got used to that after a while. That wasn't a big deal. Uh, I was worried about, you know, birds flying. That was a possibility that could have happened, but I hardly saw any birds, certainly not once I got got, uh, above a couple thousand feet. So, and I was able to move around on the craft and it would change as my center of gravity changed, but it was stable. It was, you know, like a rock. I was suspended by a single point, so I'm at the bottom of the pendulum. So it was it was nice. It was easy. That's that's part of what made it so beautiful.
0: And and that's, that vantage point. I mean, you know, you mentioned watching planes go beneath you, and the. I mean, uh, what was that like watching things go by? And I guess c- could you estimate how close they were? Do you think?
8: Uh, yeah, I've always been terrible at that, but yeah. So no one, so no one was, no one was close. The guy that went mm-hmm. by with the commercial guy, he had to be five miles away close enough that I could, I could see the windows on the craft, you know, and my eyes aren't that great. But that was, but that was still, I mean, it was like a twin engine turboprop kind of thing. He was, he wasn't flying high at that point. I was maybe only 10, 12, 13,000 feet. So he was probably going to Portland Seattle or something like
0: that. Could you hear him as, as they went by? I mean, that, that, uh, that for, fascinates
8: uh, me. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, I don't, I don't recall that. Uh, I probably did, but it doesn't. It certainly wasn't loud. It was in general quite quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could talk to people as I was leaving. You know, they sang me happy birthday. Uh, mm-hmm. Once I got up, uh, that was not a problem. Yeah, so it was, it was in general quite quiet. No wind. You know, it's kind like of a perfect sunny day. Nice, June twenty second. So you cool. said
5: you that perspective just like sean was talking about you'd been a paratrooper is that what you said that's correct jumped, and yeah. so you were talking about not feeling that high off the ground and, and that fear of heights because i i actually have a fear of heights and, and it is that last 30 feet that i think is the toughest and yeah we how about jumping out of an airplane is that somewhat comparable can you compare the two is it similar to that like is it not scary the first jump and then when you get close to the ground you're like uh-oh <laughs> I'm gonna I'm so, gonna be landing soon.
8: <laughs> so so for sure, my second jump was by far the scariest because the first jump, like you have like no idea what's going on and all the stuff is new and and everything is everything is unique in them. Uh, my first jump was a C-141, you know, and and that's all like happened all at once. So that was all a big blur. The second jump, I knew what was going on, and that just scared the heck out of me. Uh, and. Like the scariest thing I've ever done was uh, on my 21st birthday, I stood in the door of a C-130. And there you have, to, that's the, the only guy who consciously exits is the guy standing in the door. Everybody else, the guy in front of him goes, the guy back from pushing everybody's goals, right? So the guy who stands in the door, he has to jump. And that's, that, was, that was kind of scary. And we were jumping, uh, 1,200 feet was like the minimum, you know, 1,800 feet kind of stuff. And you're above the ground and it's when when the ground starts to rush up at you, when you get below the tree line, when, so when suddenly the horizon just fills your face, that's what, that's what makes your heart stop. So it's close to the ground. Being high up, there's no immediate danger. There's nothing, there's no sharp point thing about to kill you. When you get close to the ground, that, that's what scares the heck out of you. That's my observation.
5: Well, how, wow. You know, how, how many of these jumps did you do?
8: Eh, 30-something, I don't know. Uh, wow. Just some some uh, civilian jumps when I got when I got out just for fun. Uh-huh. And uh, how long were you in? Two years. Uh, I volunteered for Vietnam, but uh, didn't get to go. I was uh, uh-huh. too late. it took, well, took me an extra year to make my mind up. I was 19 when I went in, and uh, so I, I missed Vietnam. I was in baser training when Nixon said no more troops going, and they wouldn't let me out. I was stuck. I <laughs> <Well>, should do <laughs> so, you appreciate your
5: uh, service. Oh, well, thank you. And volunteering for that—that's yeah. that's wonderful.
2: Yeah. Joe, I had a question, um, partially pertaining to the altitude because at first, uh, you know, you said the intent was to go up to 17,999 feet. You had made preparations, you had onboard oxygen, you were aware of the, uh, you know, the planning and the effects of hypoxia. Uh, but during the launch phase of, uh, of the platform that day, you literally shed everything, including your shoes and oxygen and the kitchen sink. What, um, you know, you planned for it, like I said, but what was your actual experience in in crossing twenty one thousand feet uh, without oxygen? How how did you feel?
8: So, like most hypoxia victims, I had no clue. Uh, I <laughs> thought I was, I was perfectly fine. Uh, the people that was talking the radio, they thought I sounded like I was drunk. Um, so I I couldn't tell if that was because now I'm far away on the radio. I, you know, but I thought I was fine. I was not exerting myself. I wasn't making, I was making some decisions, but I didn't have any tools to work with. So I thought it was perfectly fine. I've been to 196 mountain climbing before, but that took days to get there. Um, I camped on top of Mount Hood once, you know, that's 12,000, 11,000 feet. Um, so I don't, I can't say that I'm aware of any issues, but I'm the wrong person to ask because, I, you know, you need to, you need to have been uh, there testing. me. And I had this plan. The plan was I had a guy, he's a pilot, and he was like my ground guy. And we made this list of questions, you know, what's your brother's birth date and stuff like that. And if I couldn't answer those questions, he was going to give me a code word that said, we understood that to mean pull the plug to send now. We, we never actually worked it out. That was part of the initial plan and the phrase. I've never really worked it out. But the idea was there was a the guy who was a pilot and he, he alone was the guy I trusted to make this level of decision. He would not be scared. He would be able to use good judgment. And if I couldn't answer his questions, he would command me and hope I obeyed to descend. That was part of the plan. As it turns out, I had no means of descending, so it wouldn't have helped anyway. Uh, and the only, were, the only thing that I really could have used a parachute for was the condition of uncontrolled ascent. There were two things. One is that I just fall out of the craft. You know, if I fell out by accident, which was, I had besides my seatbelt, I did have a safety line above me from the apex to my waist. So I really couldn't have fallen out too easily. Uh, if all my balloons suddenly popped all at once, I probably couldn't i have been in a, a, a tangle of spaghetti. I probably couldn't have exited anyway. So we chose not to take a parachute, and the, uh, and the uncontrolled ascent was the, was, the, was the only risk that was not covered. And the idea then, you on know, I, I just shoot the balloons out. That was kind of the, the plan. So to answer your question, I have no idea. The After Landing Checklist.
2: Well, that's it for this
8: episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. And as I mentioned
2: earlier, we'll be back with a fresh content show for episode number 64. Now, if you've enjoyed this show, you can uh, visit the links and show notes over at uh, stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash 63. When you get there, don't forget to like, tweet, and share this show. Plus, you can leave us a comment on the blog. Also, if you enjoyed uh, listening to this, you can support the Stuck Mike Avcast, of course, by uh, visiting our various sponsors and affiliates listed on the website. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or even show ideas, please reach us by visiting stuckmygavcast.com forward slash contact. From there, you'll be able to send us an email, you can send us a voicemail, you can even write us a piece of snail mail if so inclined. In fact, I still welcome somebody to uh, please send us a written letter. That would be fun to find that in the mailbox. Also there on that page is each of the individual co-host contact information where you can get in touch with each one of us individually. A uh, very special thank you to our sponsor, Aviation Universe, for so graciously supporting the podcast. Once again, from myself, Len Costa, Carl Valeri, Sean Moody, Rick Felty, and Victoria Zyko, thanks for tuning in to episode number 63 of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Until next time, fly smart and fly safe.
1: You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Avcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast, a Len Costa production.